And then what governments need to do is kind of look at how can they use these digital technologies and other emerging technologies to completely rethink how they deliver services and achieve their mission. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. In this episode, we're talking about e-government and how to improve government services all the way from the federal level, all the way to the local level through information technology. Office closures, social distancing, and health concerns have forced governments all around the country and the world to accelerate a digitization process that might otherwise have taken years to test out. And so now we're seeing how that's all going to play out and where we need to go forward. It was only a couple of years ago that our ITIF report on benchmarking U.S. government websites found that more than nine out of 10 of the most popular federal government websites fell short of government and industry standards for design and development. Right. And another study that we focused on state government websites, which are some of the most heavily used on the internet, we also found many of them failing to meet best practices. Today's guest has been thinking about and writing about this for years, all the way back before the year 2000. So I'm really excited to talk to him about his ideas for a path forward. Bill Eggers is the executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights, where he's responsible for the firm's public sector thought leadership. His most recent book is Delivering on Digital, the Innovators and Technologies that are Transforming Government. Welcome, Bill. It's so great to be with you here today. I've been reading your work since the very inception, and then I've been reading, reading Rob, of course, for even longer than that, back when he was at Progressive Policy Institute. So it's a, it's a real honor to be here today. Well, thanks, Bill. You know, one of the things I think we got to know each other when you were advising the Bush campaign in, the, in 2000, and, and you were instrumental in getting the campaign to adopt a very forward-looking e-government agenda, including creation of the federal CIO and an an e-government fund that actually ended up getting put in place and we still have it today. So that was great work. Originally coming from you. So you are... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why he thinks it's so great. Of the CIO and the (laughs) e-government. Thanks, Bill. So you and and a couple of colleagues recently (laughs) released a really intriguing white paper uh, called Transforming Government Post-COVID-19. And I thought one of the most interesting things in the paper, you write about what you call, quote, flipping orthodoxies when it comes to the way governments operate. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, so right now, governments all over the world, are, they're beginning to reopen not just the economies, but also their own offices and operations. And because of social distancing, virus and a variety of things, they, they really can't go back to business as usual. They have to change their operating models to adapt to this very new operating environment. And in many respects, that's a good thing because the response to the pandemic, I think, is highlighting many of government's orthodoxies, which are these deeply held beliefs about how things really should be done. Oftentimes they're unstated, they're unquestioned. And by flipping them um, could lead to significant, I think, improvements in government And they should use COVID-19 as a forcing function to transform operations and service delivery, regulation, procurement, 
and, and you know, we're starting to already see major transformations of government working in almost real time from the instant move to telework to the digitization of scores of physically provided services. I like to think of it as a lot of these things would have taken maybe years and years of pilot to do and, and to scale is always very, very difficult. But now we're seeing these things having to scale. And we're seeing some really a lot of innovative things happening in India. They're piloting AI app-driven driving exams because they can't have instructors. Um, the UK has seen digital court cases heard by video or teleconference rise by 800% since the pandemic. And I, you know, I, I think about this um, when I when you think about the disastrous launch of healthcare.gov a number of years ago, it actually ended up being the best thing that ever happened to digital government in the United States because it you it forced you know the president as top advisors cabinet heads and members of congress to all directly consider how a website should function how digital services should be delivered and they ended up making some major major fundamental changes that led to the introduction of the u.s digital service and 18f and a variety of other things and i actually i think the um, pandemic is going to have that same sort of an impact, if not greater, actually in dramatically accelerating introduction of digital transformation, both in the U.S. and also all over the world. So, you know, one thing, Bill, I hope it accelerates this other thing, which is you, you made a really good point, which is in the in the old days, pre-COVID days, you know, you might have somebody who is bold enough to do an experiment, but it'd be a very small experiment, it would take a long time. and five out of 10 times, maybe more, it doesn't get replicated, it doesn't get scaled. And I think we've shown that, that you don't have to do it that way anymore. You can, you can be bold, you can scale things up, you can take big risk and transform very quickly and it can work quite well. Absolutely, and people keep asking me whether they believe that things will go back to the way that they were, will this, these sort of changes stick and so forth. And I think the fact is we actually have all this data now we have a lot of data that you can actually telework that millions and millions of uh, workers can telework without it massively decreasing productivity. In fact, productivity has increased in a way. We, we've shown that you can do a lot of these physical services. You can kind of provide them digitally, dematerialization of these, of these services. And I, I think that those proof points are going to prove really, really important. A senior executive at the VA has told us that two months, in three months, essentially, they were able to accelerate by five years the adoption of telehealth in the VA. And so we've seen a lot of examples like that. And so I think when we look back historically on digital government and AI and so forth, that this will have been you know, a real key defining moment. What are some examples of orthodoxies that still need to be flipped? Well, one of them is just, as I mentioned, that most government services must be delivered in person. You know, think about driving tests, court proceedings, inspections, social worker visits. They've all always been conducted in person. And in fact, despite, you know, two decades now of digital, we still have a lot of government transactions are not through digital means. And I think what we've shown now is the pandemic is kind of forcing governments to shift an array of these online. And so many countries have moved to virtual courts, to motor vehicle departments have accelerated the availability of digital services. In California, you can now do 95% of them 
digitally. You know, we've had offices, you know, USDA, Social Security, um, Motor Vehicle, all of these field offices have been closed now since, since March. And so they've kind of forced these sort of things. And I think we're going to see a lot more innovation in there. And another one is that uh, physical presence is needed to authenticate identity. Um, you know, for decades, governments have insisted on a physical presence to identify, verify, uh, and authenticate people. And what we see now is uh, the flipped orthodoxy is the digital ID is the new passport, really. And um, many governments have found that these digital identity programs have been immensely beneficial during COVID-19, they're kind of solving the last mile program problem. When individuals have needed them the most, the biggest one in the world is in India, where basically every citizen in India has a digital identification. It was the biggest, I think probably the biggest digital project we've seen in, in history. And it links bank accounts to citizens' mobile numbers and digital identity credentials. And it's being used to disperse COVID-19 cash relief. And we're seeing a variety of other countries really accelerate their movement to digital identification like South Korea and others. And, and this is an area where the U.S. Is, is really falling pretty far behind right now. And it's because of kind of jurisdictional issues, who owns the identi identity and so forth. But you can't have seamless 360 degree sort of citizen online services without digital ID. So I'm hoping this will accelerate that movement here in the U.S., which has been which has been slower than other parts of the world. You know, you mentioned that I remember back when I was at PPI, we came out with a report after 9-11 tragedy and we called for the creation of a voluntary digital ID that you could get with your driver's license. And we actually had a there was a bill introduced by at the time Congressman Jim Moran and, and Congressman Tom Davis, a Republican and a Democrat, both great uh, members when it came to thinking about technology. Tom Davis is a, a former colleague and a, and a very good friend and one of the I think the leading members of Congress in last couple of decades in terms of government IT issues. Absolutely right. And so this bill, unfortunately, it, it was demagogued by groups like the ACLU, the national ID. It had nothing to do with the national ID. It simply gave states uh, support and incentives to create state uh, level voluntary digital IDs. That didn't go anywhere. 2009, my colleague Daniel Castro uh, wrote a big report on what countries are doing the best on digital identities, Estonia at the time being, being the best, as you, you mentioned, India now, and we were doing nothing. About a year and a half ago, we proposed an initiative where, again, voluntarily, you should be able to get your passport and pay an extra $20 and get a digital ID through that, partly just to sort of get the market going and then other people would demand it. Do you think maybe we've turned a corner and maybe we'll start to see some movement, even in certain states? I think we saw Iowa was playing around with this. Yes, there are actually five states right now that are working on this right now. Uh, Colorado is, a, is another one. We also, at the federal level, um, GSA has a big initiative around digital identification. I know it's really, really a very high priority for them right now. I think the, the biggest problem is kind of who's who's going to lead in this because at the federal level, you know, you've got GSA, you've got Social Security Administration, which could say that they could play a role. You've even got US Postal Service wanting to be involved in this in some respect in terms of the, having the retail outlets, but then there's the state DMVs. And I think that's been one of the big barriers in the US compared to other countries. I'm I'm guessing in the end that this will probably lie with the, the state DMVs. 
but almost every country in Europe has a pretty aggressive program around not only digital ID, but mirroring Estonia in terms of once only, which is wonderful. It means that you only have to give your information to government once, and then it's shared among other government agencies and other levels of government with, of course, uh, different kind of precautions and so forth and standards. And that would make a, a very, very big difference. And I, I think we're a little further away in that area also. I think anyone who's had to apply for a driver's license or a passport or, you know, get a new social security paper card would applaud these suggestions. But what are the most important things to consider in implementing these digital applications for government services and and digital IDs? Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a variety of things. I, I wrote a I wrote a whole book on this called Delivering on Digital, which looked at the government's digital transformation. It was the second book I've, I've written on that. I'd written one 10 years earlier or so, Government 2.0, where I looked at the eGov movement. And this was really to see this book, I would look back and I said, why did a lot of the things that Rob, myself and others who had been big cheerleaders for digital transformation, why hadn't a lot of this happened before and so forth? And, and why is it more likely now? One of the things I, I talked about in this book was that most people think of um, it is about what the need to hack bureaucracy. And what I mean by that is most people think of hacking in a more pejorative sense, you know, breaking into computer systems, wreaking havoc on companies. But in the digital world, hacking is a different meaning. It's to use ingenuity, digital prowess, you know, to fix a problem. And, um, and that's really the sort of mindset they need. We need hackers in this positive sense, productively disruptive and curious and so forth. So the, the argument is that for most established government processes, you've got hiring or training, project delivery, procurement, security, what have you, they're mostly incompatible with the digital way of working and they need to be transformed and, and redesigned or hacked in the best sense of the word to achieve digital transformation. And, and that's what's really key is that you need to find ways to creatively reform and modernize these longstanding bureaucratic processes because they don't work right in the digital world. And then what governments need to do is kind of look at how can they use these digital technologies and other emerging technologies to completely rethink how they deliver services and achieve their missions. And that's around just reimagining and redesign of these, you know, an example moving from prisons to electronic monitoring um, for nonviolent offenders, for example. That's a reimagining of how you deliver a service. And I think that's where we're at this stage where we're starting to see some of these things happening. And that's the really exciting point. And it just, you know, goes well, well, well beyond government websites. You know, Bill, to your point about, I mean, reminded way back when of uh, that famous book by Michael Hammer on, on re-engineering the corporation, which, you know, it was a little bit of fluff, but it had a fundamental core point, which is what you just said. You can't, what he said, you can't pave over the cow path. You, you've got to do something different. I, I was on a NASIO call a while back, National Association of State CIOs, and before the call, we were talking about this challenge, and, and, and one of them was DMVs. And, and one of the things that struck me was you don't see many states, at least I haven't, who go in and they say, okay, what are we actually, what are the functions we're actually doing here? And how could we turn all of those functions or 95 to 99% of them into digital? It's more happenstance. And I think what you were saying is you need a more systematic approach that really looks at the functions 
rather than starts with the technologies. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and we do talk about that in, in the Challenging Orthodoxy piece. And actually, we point to Clay Christensen talked about and his work on disruptive innovation as looking at what's the job to be done. And you fundamentally look at what is the actual job to be done? What do you want to accomplish in the end? And then you come up with a new way of actually getting that job done rather than starting from where things are today. And an example of that is, you know, something like, you know, what Netflix said, you know, the job to be done is not to have people go to a video store and so forth. They just want to see a movie. How can we stream that directly into their house or getting a flu shot used to be, you know, going into a doctor's office and so forth and doing that. But the job, all we cared about was really just getting the vaccine. And so now we can do that at a CVS. And so really focusing on the job to be done then allows you to do a lot of these things very, very differently than, than we've done them before. And that's where you get the sort of, I think, much more transformational approaches. What are some of the most exciting things you're seeing in government these days using IT? Well, you know, just in the pandemic, we've seen some really interesting things, you know, robots and drones and other technologies have been used for thermal screening and disinfection, remote patient monitoring. We've seen in China, they robots monitoring patient health, delivering meals and even disinfecting services and so forth. But I, I do think I like that. I need that in my house. I, know. I, I am I'm going to be first on the on the list when they have a multi-purpose uh, robot. But I, I think that, you know, what I, I really do think that one of the certainly technologies that's going to have the biggest impact on government over the next decade is artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, and you guys have written some wonderful, wonderful papers on this and especially around the regulatory issues and ethical issues of AI. But, you know, one reason why AI can work well for government is that it needs huge volumes of data. Governments have lots, plenty of volume and the U.S. federal government has already digitized hundreds of millions of pages of government records. And, um, and when you do all of that, you can have an enormous sort of impact. So we did the first ever analysis of how federal employees spend their time using a variety of data sets. And we found that they spend 4.3 billion hours doing a whole variety of tasks and activities. And it turns out, no big surprise, that a lot of those tasks and activities were paperwork oriented. Um, for instance, 450 million hours spent just recording and documenting information and very little time actually spent like on things like training and coaching others and developing others. So we found that you can free up of 1.3 billion hours. Okay. 1.3 billion hours just by using digital uh, automation technologies or robotic process automation that are available today. And that's like a, a day a week from almost every federal employee. Um, so it really pretty incredible sort of things you can do with AI in all its forms. You can generate new abilities in national security, food safety, regulation, and healthcare. There's really no area. It's not going to have an impact. But the problem is, and this gets to what we we're talking about with digital, you need a strategy. You need a strategy or else it's going to be just done in fits and starts, and it's not going to, going to be done in a significant way. And this is what we saw early on with e-government. It was basically was, you know, paving the cow pass as, as Rob said. So you can't graft AON onto existing or 
organizations and processes, you have to have kind of an integrated set of decisions and actions, a strategy. Complex choices are involved. What applications do we prioritize? Which technologies do we use? How do we articulate its value to the workforce? How do we manage AI projects? And without this sort of overarching strategy, I'm worried that um, it would these complex technology initiatives, they often drift. They can fix easy problems in silo departments, or sometimes they just automate inefficiencies, putting lipstick on a bulldog. And so that's, I think, the key thing. And we found that with digital transformation very, very clearly. And I think we're going to find the same thing with, uh, with AI today. So, you know, Bill, maybe my last question, your point about strategy reminds me of a great Yogi Berra quote where he said, if, if you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else. And, you know, here to me, one of the things about one of the core questions is where should government go? And I've written on this and I know you've written on this. And one of our core points is, especially now in this period where we're going to face government fiscal austerity for a long, long time because of the COVID crisis. To us, one of the places where you want to go is efficiency, is cost savings, higher productivity. This is what corporations have done. They've driven out costs by using digital. And yet government seems ambiguous about that at best. Where do you see government going with that? And, and, and that's also one of the goes to this other point of government can never get enough money to modernize because they, well, it costs money, the legislature says. But if you could make a case, yeah, it costs money, but your ROI over a period is going to be a lot bigger because you're cutting costs and improving quality. How do you see that all playing out now? Well, well first of all, you're absolutely right. I'm writing a piece right now looking at how state and local governments are going to address the massive, massive budget deficits that they're going to be facing. And, and digitization is going to be one of the most important ways of doing so, because sometimes you can see cost takeouts of up not 10%, but up to 70, 80%. So it's going to be absolutely critical. Now, as to the, the getting the money part, I hear that all the time and I want to kind of address it. So first of all, governments need to spend what they have better. And this means shifting the spending from legacy operating systems right now. And these, I mean, these legacy systems, they're holding agencies back from using these new technologies, from creating these modern experiences. The U.S. government will spend about $90 billion on IT, just in the civilian sector, this fiscal year. And that's more than many Fortune 50 companies earn in revenue in a year. But about 75% of all that is spent on non-major investments. So it's basically just operating these legacy systems. And what you've seen, what we see in the private sector is they've been shifting data applications to the cloud. They've been hosting services on the cloud environment, which allows a lot more flexibility. They, they're using agile and DevOps to, to design, build and maintain these services and solutions. And so they're able to take a lot of the money out of that kind of the core sort of just operating systems and put it more into productivity enhancing solutions, the sort of thing that you guys have written a lot about. So that's, I think, one of the key things. Secondly, many of these productivity enhancing digital and AI applications are not necessarily budget busters. They can be produced in agile sprints. Uh, third, I think much of the AI capabilities government's needs will be able to be accessed through software as a service. AI intelligence is already being built into all the next generation of countless software that governments are already using. The last thing I would say for state and local governments is they get a lot of money for technology systems and so forth from the federal government. 
and they can use those to to bring a lot of these sort of the modern IT to bear. And I think we're going to start to see that in areas like Medicaid systems and, and others. Well, thanks so much for being here, Bill. We, I feel like we could talk for another few hours, but we, we have a limited time. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you and follow your work? Sure. Um, on Twitter, I'm at WD Eggers. I'm on LinkedIn and you can also find me on... Buy all your books. Buy the, buy the <laughs> Amazon. Yeah, go on Amazon, buy the books. And we will be uh, launching a podcast series in a couple months on the future of government. And so we will link to your books in the show notes and Rob looks forward to being a guest on your podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on itif.org. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. That's it for now. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every Monday morning, so we hope you'll tune in next week.